Bridges to the Future was launched as a short series of podcasts to explore how the COVID crisis was impacting us and how our response to that crisis might prefigure a different future. That was almost a year ago. And since then, we've had a fantastic array of thinkers and ideas. But we don't just need creative individuals. We also need new institutions. Which are the organisations doing the most important and innovative thinking about the new world? Today on Bridges, I speak to a key figure in one of those organisations, one that you really do need to know about. This is Bridges to the Future, the big ideas podcast brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. So I'm excited to welcome today Indy Joha, who's an old friend of mine, but on today as a founding director of an organisation called Dark Matter Labs. Indy, how are you? Good morning. I'm very well. Hi, Matthew. How's lockdown been for you? I have to admit the third lockdown, this current version of it, is much harder psychologically. I think the length of time and duration, I think psychologically, sort of the world seems much smaller in this third lockdown, whereas there was a kind of almost a sense of new expansiveness in the kind of first lockdown. You could explore new ways of being. This feels much harder, I have to admit. You know, it's really interesting you say that, Andy, because I wrote a blog with my colleague Ian Burbage a couple of weeks ago called The Darkness Before the Dawn. And one of the things we reflected on was that in that first lockdown, there was so much conversation, wasn't there, about building back better? You know, the RSA launched this initiative, Bridges to the Future, which, of course, is the name of, of this podcast. But strangely, even though we probably are now able to see, you know, the end of this in some way or other, maybe we won't go back to normal before COVID, but we'll get to a, a more kind of normal, steady state. Yet there's much less talk at the moment of, you know, how we can bounce into a new future. There is a kind of sense of, of exhaustion almost. Maybe it's that people feel if they talk about the future now, it's somehow unlucky. It, it makes it, it makes it, having done it before, that somehow it, it'll curse us. My personal feeling of it is the crisis and the systemic nature of the crisis feels more real. And I would say a lot more trust has been lost in the future. So yes, whilst the pathway to a future feels real. I think it's pretty evident we're now operating in a massively multipolar, rivalrous world. I think the most psychologically affecting dimension of that is that I would like to propose the future is currently a space of fear with multiple dimensions to it. And I think the nature of that fear is permeating through the system. And I think there's a kind of existential fear of what the kind of next nature of the world brings. We already know there's issues around food crises coming. We know there's a whole cascade of issues that come, and yet we're not able to build existential hope for civilization. I think there's a deep realization that many of the tools and devices, you know, let's retrofit the cities and let's do all this sort of stuff, which are all real and important, they don't deal with the underlying deep schisms that are starting to merge to the fore and are starting to put many things at risk in a way that I don't think we fully comprehended in that sense. And I think there's a deeper sense to this story. I think it's the realisation of that. And for me, it's also 
whether our institutions and our tools have really started to gear up to this and then not only respond to the risks, but then build existential hope, which I think is a really fundamental issue. Well, deep, profound problems require deep and profound answers. And and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Indy, before we talk about your work, and in particular, you're involved in lots of organisations, I think, but particularly about Dark Matter Labs. Just tell us a bit about you, Indy, about who you are and the journey that that you've been on. Give us a potted biography. My journey to all of this is, I suppose, coloured by several things. Born in the UK, born in London, West London, grew up in West London, but spent about three years in India at the same time as the 1984 riots were going on. I was there you know, I was locked up in, in a place called Shadra, which was then on the rock side of the river, as, you know, literally men, boys, girls were being ripped out of homes and killed and abused and everything else after Indra Gandhi's m- murder. And this was a concerted effort. I was hidden in that situation in a road next door to where we were. And I was hidden disguised as a girl, so people thought, you know, maybe they would leave me alone. And then ended up being pulled back into, I got pulled out in safety by a military. And I remember driving through the streets of Delhi. You know, you could see stacks of tires literally lying around where people had been burned. That moment sort of just did something to me, I think, just in terms of, how we could trigger the inhumanity to each other at such a rapid rate. It didn't sort of turn around to me and say, right, we need to do, there was something, you know, we should advance the Sikh cause or anything like that. What it did to me was that there was something much deeper and fundamental. And the Sikh cause is important, obviously, but there is also a much deeper cause, which is actually our ability to execute this level of inhumanity was pretty significant and how it could be triggered. And that opened up for me a uh, kind of realisation, I suppose, whatever, and ended up coming back to the UK, sort of ended up studying, did lots of different things, was pretty good at maths, physics, chemistry, got bored, did uh, history, sciences, and then also did architecture. Architecture really intrigued me because suddenly you had a dimension to think about the future, not just analyse the past. And the propositional capacity of architecture, which I think is deeply underrated, propositional thinking versus analytical thinking, just really, really opened up some stuff for me. And there on in, I've just been working at multiple dimensions, helped set up Zero Zero with David Saxby. From the back of that, we did lots of crazy things and learned how to make things in the world, whether it was open source furniture, wiki house, open source housing, all the way through to impact hubs and helping seed a few impact hubs and build being part of the global network design. So ended up building things. And dark matter for me was a kind of realization that behind everything we were building were institutional logics. And these institutional logics were the implicate order to what we construct. So if you want to build open source housing, one of the real fundamental challenges is how you construct warranties in order to be able to financialize the house and get a mortgage. And unless you could construct a new way of thinking about warranty structures, which wasn't centralized, you would revert the system back into centralized control. 
And at the same time, new technology was coming out. So it felt to me that whilst all our attempts were interesting, we weren't dealing with the underlying systemic causes, which were these institutional infrastructures. So let's get into that, Indy, because I mean, I have to say one way in which I'm incredibly envious of you and of Dark Matter Labs is that the RSA kind of labours somewhat under the fact that it's got a, a name that doesn't which we inherit, we're very proud, of course, of our history, but we inherit this name from 270 years that doesn't really describe what we do. But what I love about Dark Matter Labs, it takes you right to what seems to be at the core of your work. Because the notion of dark matter is the notion of something that is around us everywhere, but that we don't really understand, that holds the universe together, but we don't know what it is. And that really does get to the heart of what you're about, because you're about understanding what is it that holds institutions and people and communities and societies in the pattern that they're in right now, an unsustainable pattern? And what has to change at a very kind of deep level in order to make that different? Is that is that a reasonable description of your kind of core mission? Totally. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's exactly it. And they're all around us, as you rightly say. They're at every level. Property right, the idea of a property right is itself a form of dark matter. And it's been a constructed notion of how to see the world. It can also go to social imaginaries. I mean, the idea of the individual is a social imaginary, which has then been concretized in lots of different formats. So although our work is not in that space, I would say the construction of language. So English has, I think, one of the largest number of noun usage. So we see the world through objects, whereas other languages and indigenous languages have almost this complete opposite of verb-driven languages, which see the world through actions and activity. So whether we see a mountain as an object or a verb in action, so a mountain will obviously over millions of years erode, fade away and become micro hills and disappear. So there's a very interesting notion of these deep structures, which are forming our world around us and you describe it more elegantly than i will so just tell people what it is because when people hear this they'll say well what is it? is it a consultancy is it a think tank you know going to your website and i encourage everyone to go to your website it's full of the most fantastic material you're very global you have people all over the world you have a whole interesting kind of variety of people who support your activities so just tell us about the kind of organizational form of dark matter labs sure I'll tell you our aspirations and where we fall short as well. I mean, we're trying to be not necessarily a global organization, but a planetary organization. And the reason why I say that is the globe is the kind of a, an abstraction of, of our world into a thesis which allows us to complete it. Whereas a planetary system, it's a system, it's evolving, emerging. And we seek to be part of that and be able to take a, a planetary perspective through that lens. That's an aspiration. and. You know, I was very grateful for my experience with the Impact Hub Network because it allowed me to think about organization, not through the kind of typical office format of how many people can you cram in an office, but how do you build a network of amazing people around the world around this mission, which I've been part of building with many other people like Yoast and other people. So we're about 40 odd people. We, if you want to know the truth of how we work, we work I think we have some underlying ideas which operate from how we finance, how we contract, and how we govern. And there are some deep structures in those that we want to change. We realize the complexity of, say, any one of these changes is very large. So what we've done is broken up these challenges into micro-discrete 
theses, so exploring property rights in one location. So we were doing some, Jonathan Lapam and various others have done some really interesting work as part of the team, going from property rights to micro-treaties with land, which is about really reconfiguring the relationship with nature. We've got other people like Anastasia, Raj, who are working on smart perpetual bonds, which are looking at new financing structures, which remove the capital equity value while still allowing the capital markets to play. So looking at new financial structures, which which remove the thesis of ownership. So what we've done is try to break up the problem into lots of different components of how we build the institutional infrastructures for societal innovation. And I think currently, as a society, we're accruing risk, a societal risk at a rate that we do not have the capacity to manage. And our ability to manage that risk and the institutions required to manage that risk and the reconfiguration of relationships required to manage that risk are fundamental. So a lot of our work is really configured around this idea of how do we reimagine ourselves as being human? And that idea of being human, transcending the thesis of humans as individual objects and individual actors, but actually as agents of interdependence. And all, I mean, you, many of the speakers and previous hosts have talked about the human as a multitude, the social brain, all these things, these are all parts of reconfiguring the thesis of being human. But then it's also the thesis of being human being linked to our relationship with the future. We currently do not account for the future generations and the reduction of scope we are creating for future generations. Our relationship with nature, which is a function of a resource to be exploited, as opposed to a foundational relationship where we are nature. I would argue that the image of humans isolated in space in an astronaut suit is probably one of the most destructive hypermodernist images because it built the thesis that humans could be isolated and individualized and extracted away. Where we're far more interdependent with nature in terms of microbiomes for our intelligence and various other things, components to it. So the environmental context, the kind of future context, our relationship with the built world and how we construct that, I think these things are what we're really focused on. And so what we're doing across the world is working on small parts of this process because nobody's going to take the whole thesis. So we're working, for example, in Madrid, looking at how do you help plant 400 million euros worth of trees and do it in a way which is fundamentally different because currently trees are a liability. They're a cost in terms of maintenance and in terms of actual risk that they do in terms of subsiding adjacent properties. So yet the environmental services and all those other things are largely discounted. So we don't actually have the right relationship with many of these structural infrastructures around the world, our future, our environment, our natural systems, ourselves. That's what I find so fascinating about your work, Indy, is that you go from some really pretty challenging ideas, concepts, which really require us to rethink as you say, right to the point of rethinking who we are, but yet you don't just exist in the kind of world of floating concepts because your work is fiercely practical, as you said, for example, in Madrid. Tell us a bit about who who you partner with, who you're finding it's most useful to partner with. I mean, I, I get the sense that you, like other innovative thinkers, I think of Kate Rayworth here, for example, it, it's at the city level that you're often finding the kind of leaders who are willing to think boldly? I mean, so there's two parts to this question, and I think it's really important that we address. Yes, cities are really important. I think one of my biggest problems is that 
we are underfunding societal innovation. If you look at the scale of risk accruing and our investment against managing that risk is fundamentally underfunded. And I think that's a really structural problem right now. And I think I have to say, like the last many years in, in the UK, innovation has been like, you know, producer systems change report. And I've become deeply frustrated because actually to do the work is so much bigger. You know, we often get locked into these micro sums when actually to build a network of urban forests in a city is hundreds of millions of dollars, pounds, euros. So we aren't actually thinking allocation of capital is just not sufficient. And that's one dimension. And the second dimension is actually our ability to build complex teams. So many of the people working at societal risk level, it's really difficult to build the complex teams that are necessary. The data scientists, the kind of the people who can code, the people who can create UX infrastructures, the kind of accounting infrastructures, the legal infrastructures, all these things are really difficult to deliver. And one of the challenges that we face is that without that, we aren't building the right teams, we're not funding appropriately. And then I think we undervalue thinking. So one of the things that I think has become really deeply problematic is, you know, this culture of just do it. Why don't you just do it? And actually, we need to think and do. And this is an age, as you'll pronounce this better than I will, Polini's kind of thing of philosopher makers. We need to be able to philosophize and make at a rapid scale in a way that we've not done before. So I think that's some fundamentals that I think we really need to rebuild from a UK perspective. I think you're right in terms of constituents. Cities have been very powerful constituents, as have you know European institutional organisations like Climate Kick, who have taken a systems-level view, and other institutions like McConnell Foundation. So there have been strategic organisations around the world that have been taking this systemic view. I think that's not enough and we need more, but I think it's certainly happening in that scale. And I think in the UK, I think, you know, not just for the purpose of name check, but name checks are important in terms of recognizing that people like Cassie Robinson, I think, are doing really important work in terms of trying to push the debate of what philanthropy is doing in the UK and beyond. So the one thing I would say is cities have been interesting, but if you look at the political divide between urban and rural, which has become deeply problematic. I think one of the things that we really need to start to talk about is whether cities are a viable unit of change. And city especially defined as a boundary. I think we need to start to reimagine cities as systems and only through recognizing the investment in the system as a whole, not the M25 geographic boundary, will we create the new politics required to effectively construct change. Because currently, whether it's Stockholm, whether it's London, you know, we've almost become anti-urban in terms of our political theses. And that's also true in Canada and other places. So there's a really interesting component question here for us, is what is the unit of change? And more and more, I would say we need to start to think about bioregions as structural units of change as we start to reconfigure our economy and as COVID starts to reconfigure our geography of living as a result of many other changes. There's an example, I think, of what I wanted to ask you about next, which is you talk about bioregions, and you know it's a fascinating concept. 
But, you know, you and I share something, which is that we are in the end ultimately interested in making a difference. You know, you have a brain which would mean that you could, you know, thrive in academia if you wanted to, but you've chosen not to do that because you want to work with people who are change makers. But the question here, Indy, is how do these new ideas, these radically different ideas, these ideas which are challenging to people, not just because of the question of, you know, how deeply they question the prevailing status quo, but they're, they're challenging because you can't get involved as an individual in the kind of work you do, Indy, and the kind of ideas that you have without challenging yourself as an individual. So you think of all of that. How on earth do you reach out then what we might call old power to conventional political power? How do you build a bridge? Because I spend time talking to mainstream politicians, and I have to say, very little that we've spoken about this morning would feel to them of any kind of relevance to the day-to-day battles that they have and to the kind of ways in which they might judge themselves. How do we do that? How do we build a bridge to those older systems of power? Do we just have to wait for them to crumble? Or is there a way of engaging mainstream politicians, for example, national mainstream politicians in this kind of thinking? I mean, it's a really good question. My theory on this has been that one of the reasons that we worked, you know, at a planetary level or kind of a sort of post-national level is that we're looking for what I would say the 3.5% of change, specifically. We're looking for working with partners that want to do that small change really well. Because by doing it, you create the proof cases. I don't think people are stuck ideologically. Well, some people are, but let's assume most people aren't. I think most people are stuck because they are stuck. They don't know what to do and they don't have proof cases. How often have you and I heard somebody say, but where has this been done before? Right. So there is always going to be a middle bulge of people waiting for where has this been done for? And I think our role and I think I include, you know, all the great work that you've done, Matthew, and I really appreciate it, is to create that 3.5% of provable pathways, which allow other people to follow. And I think that's not a, I think too often the theory of change gets stuck into moving the bulge in the middle. The bulge in the middle never moves, it just follows. And I think what we have to do is be able to move the kind of front tail and not only move that front tail, but to socialize that knowledge, open source that knowledge as quickly as possible to create trails for actually moving faster. So my theory of change has, has to, you know, being really honest, has been focused on doing that and then documenting as much as we can, moving the debate forward as much as we can. You know, you spend a huge amount of time evangelizing, as do I, in terms of actually some of these things that are possible. And then recognizing, and I think this is something that, that has shifted for me, is that COVID has really declared the kind of space between the crisis and the innovation need. And I think we're moving into quite a different phase where the space between the crisis and the innovation need is going to narrow and the speed of change that's going to be required is going to be extraordinary. And I think that is where we're going to have to work much harder and much better. But we can't give up on old power, though, can we, indeed? Because, I mean, I'll give you two examples on this. And the first one is to say simply this. You know, a very old-fashioned thing has happened in America, which is that 
you know, the good guy beat the bad guy and won the election. And what Biden has done in his first week or two in relation to climate change is revolutionary. And so those old power shifts do matter. And so one of the things it seems to me is important is that when the old power structures shift, we need to have the ideas and the alliances to be able to work with those old power structures at those moments of possibility. Or another example I would give is, it seems to me that the the Labour Party in the UK at the moment is implicitly having a kind of jostle between a one more heave view, which is, well, Labour might win or do very well at the next election just because the Conservatives won't have delivered levelling up because people will remember the problems of coronavirus, etc., etc. And, you know, the Tories will have been in power for 15 years versus a view that says, no, Labour has got to establish new ground. It has to develop new narratives. It has to have a progressive radical alternative. If we don't engage with those old power systems, we don't take advantage of those opportunities, do we? No, I totally hear you. I'm just seeing change currently happen around the periphery of those old power systems. What I mean by periphery is, you know, I think some of the stuff that's been going on in, say, places like Stockholm or... So what I'm saying is that to move London or Westminster is much more difficult than moving peripheral systems because the legacy lock-ins are much larger. So the question is, where in the world can you drive some of these moves? So indigenous nations in Canada are well ahead of us in terms of recognizing a new relationship with the world. They've always been. And there's a new hybrid thinking that's possible that isn't possible right now. It'd be a massive quantum leap in many parts of Europe. So there's also kind of key possibility pathways that exist to prove these cases. So I I don't disagree with you. I'm not walking away from all power. In fact, I think that all power is going to have to think much harder and act much harder. And I think there's lots of things to be done there. But I'm also looking for these other spaces that are allowing these proof cases to be built. And that, to me, is really important. Without the proof cases, we don't move forward. I get that. And I mean, I think almost that one needs to be explicit about a kind of twin track strategy, which is being ready to seize those opportunities in the old power structures, the old power ways of working when they occur, but recognize that they are contingent, as it were, we can't create them ourselves. They will come along. And when they do, we need to try to push through that opening that exists. But because in a sense, they're contingent, because they're out of our control, we also have to do what you're doing, which is in kind of green field sites or places which are not so constrained to be able to develop in practical terms those examples of what the future might be. And, it, and one has to do both those things at once, it seems to me. If you just do the first, you end up so compromised and so often defeated that you lose heart. But if you just do the latter, you can do great things that become isolated and in the end get overpowered by what's happening in the kind of existing structure. So I think there's almost a kind of need for us to be explicit in that. Now, India, at the beginning of our conversation, you sounded pretty pessimistic, I have to say. You were talking about risks overwhelming us, existential risks. But I don't view you as a pessimist. So have you become pessimistic or are you still an optimist? And if you are an optimist, given what you've said, where does that optimism lie? I'm not a pessimist, definitely. What I am is, is that 
we need to recognize the scale of what's happening and be able to actually appropriately counter it. And I think that's my kind of big structural question is are we appropriately countering those risks? So, you know, one of the things that's been a real realization for me is the impact investment story. Lots of people talk about it. The largest impact investment funds are reasonable, but none of them are going to change, put 400 million to build a network of urban forests in Madrid. So whether we have built the right tools to deal with the systemic risks, whether actually when you look at the kind of structural risks that we're carrying, whether our institutional capacity, i.e., let's grant fund the innovation so that we can prove some of the evidence, and once we've proven some of the evidence, we will bridge it with some hybrid capital, and then we'll sort of start to marry the innovation, the hedge to the risk, and that'll be perfect, to actually the reality of the speed of how we're going to have to look at our risks and our liabilities innovate dynamically and quickly and adjust continuously to build a settlement between the liability and the innovation at speed. And what are our actual funding instruments required to do it? So for me, there's a sort of, what is the scale of technology? And I use that word not in a kind of material sense, but in the kind of social and financial and also technological sense required to build that. But also I fear that we're not being honest with ourselves. I would love the leadership and governments to start to be more honest with ourselves, to then create the space for hope to be legitimate. And I think that's why I say this, that when you start to realize the mental health crisis that many people are suffering, and I don't think it's a sort of just the suicide rate, that's pretty serious. Underneath it, depression rates. Underneath it, obviously, the horrible level of kind of domestic violence. But underneath that is the everyday destruction of microhope. Now, I would say the psychological health and the psychological extrinsic hope of a nation is fundamental to its capacity to rebuild itself. And for me, by understanding the challenge, it allows us to direct the resources to recognize a new human development capacity that's required to be constructed in a new age. And we did this, right? You know, the RSA was founded at the first industrial revolutional sort of, in a way, in that period where the UK had already done the Education Reform Acts to which the Industrial Revolution sat on top of on top of the educational reform. We now need to do a whole new human development act in order to transition society into a new arc. And for me, the pessimism isn't pessimism. It's our description of the world to allow us to put the appropriate scale of investment on the table in a way that allows us to move forward. And that's really the balance I'm constantly thriving for. Yeah, no, I think that point about honesty just brings to mind, Indy, the concept of levelling up for me, which is this government is to be commended for its commitment to trying to address huge regional disparities in the UK economy. What is kind of problematic, though, is that it has an ambition like that, a commendable ambition, but yet almost a kind of determination not to be open about how complex that is, or even to define what is actually involved. So one has a bit of rhetoric detached from the kind of profound change that would have to happen in order for that rhetoric to come about. And it's hard to see how something like that doesn't inevitably end up fostering a greater sense of cynicism 
an even more diminished sense of agency amongst people. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And the leveling up agenda is important because I think, you know, if you look at middle class wages, they've been stagnating. We are at the end of the thesis of human value as we've constructed it in the industrial age or the managerial age is diminishing. We are now operating in a post-managerial society and we're seeing not only sort of those at the bottom, but we're seeing middle classes increasingly being stripped out and Brexit will accelerate that. So what we're seeing is the kind of polarization of society at a much, and delamination of society at a much higher level. And Brexit, COVID, these will accelerate these conditions. So the agenda of how we level up, and I think it's, you know, I'm not even sure leveling up is the right language, but I respect it. I understand where the politics is coming from for it. But I think this kind of thesis of how we build how we rebuild the nation and the human development capacity of the nation is an extraordinarily relevant moment as we see automation, as we see disruption of our supply chains, as we transform what we buy, what we consume. I think we will end up having to destroy a lot of our malconsumer economy. That transition is massive. So the agenda is appropriate, and I agree with you. And I think, how do we have an honest debate about that agenda and then build the right institutional infrastructures and the mechanisms to, to deal with it, I think is really critical. And I think this is where the construction of language needs to be backed by the institutional frameworks to do that. At the same time, you know, let's if we're going to be pertinent, I've been really intrigued by how the UK government, in a good way, has managed the vaccine situation. Firstly, just how they took a risk-based approach, how they put a venture capitalist at charge of actually procuring vaccines, who took a portfolio approach to what was being offered, how they invested into whole supply chains. They invested three months ahead of earlier many people. So they were taking a risk-based approach, a whole value chain investment-based approach. They were looking at securing supply chains in really strategic ways. And that was a very powerful piece of strategic engineering of building capacity in the UK. And I think we need to take that systems and risk-based approach to re-engineering everything else that we've got on the table, which is a similar problem. And I think that's going to be critical. So I agree with you. The agenda is right. I think we need to build new typologies of how government acts. And I think, I hope the government, through what's done, I think, reasonably well, certainly by all accounts, has learned with the vaccine structure, I think we're going to have to deploy that thesis of governance in a long emergency of crises. That is going to be the normal model of operating as we have to rebuild our supply chains and we have to rebuild our value chains in radical formats at speed. I think, Andy, that's absolutely fascinating point on which to end, which is that you're quite right. In many ways, our government has behaved very problematically and very unsuccessfully over the last year. But this vaccine thing, they seem to have got absolutely right. And and not just right in terms of the fact that you know, more people are vaccinated in Britain, but also they have genuinely played an important role globally here as well. And so that does give us something as we hope we emerge from this crisis, that it's not just about well, what can we learn from the way in which COVID has shone a light on our frailties and our lack of resilience, but there's also really importantly now an element we can look at and say, well, look, we did manage to get something right. And what can we take from that? Well, look, Indy, it's been brilliant to talk to you. I'm just sitting here looking at the Dark Matter Labs website. I encourage everybody who's been interested in this conversation, interested in what Indy's been saying to go to that website. As I say, it's not just full of you know big challenging ideas, but it's full of very specific 
concrete projects. I'm just looking here at Alternative Camden, a civic innovation district, as an example. That's going back a few years. But there's lots of fascinating stuff on the website. Indy Johar, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me. My honest pleasure. Thank you, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.